Good morning, Cross Point. Thank you so much for joining us this this morning. Thank you. Before the kids leave, we do want to do our scripture reading because we have been doing the same scripture both here in our worship gathering and also in our children's ministry. And so we want to read that text together over the church family before we release the kids. And so this morning we have Tina Hood reading for us from Genesis chapter three. If you want to turn there with us, that's Genesis chapter three. And if you will stand with me for the reading of God's word. Better. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from, it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to the dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. 
So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Tina. Children, you can be released as well for Children's Church as you'll be studying this passage as well. And then if the rest of you, if you haven't already, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We are in week 3 of our series entitled The Story of God. It's us walking from Genesis to Revelation to see that crimson thread of Christ in all of Scripture. We're in week 3. In week 1, we looked at creation. The fact that the character of God that was expressed in creation is the same character of God we experience in our salvation. We also looked last week at what it means for mankind to be uniquely created in the image of God and how that gives mankind both a distinct value and a distinct responsibility. Today, We're kind of continuing in that. And up to this point, it's all been good news. God created the world, right? Like he took what was formless and he took what was empty and and he gave it form and he filled it with his glory and substance that he created you and I in his image. And it's all been good up to this point. But the reality is when we look at the world today, we realize that's not the world we live in today. And so it forces each of us, I think, to ask a very important question, like why are things and people not the way that they're supposed to be? Like why are things not like that? And who or what is is to blame? Because we feel the reality that things aren't very good, that there is brokenness in the world. Just in our story, collectively here, how many people have themselves or a loved one walked through some form of physical illness and death. Like we feel that brokenness, a brokenness in our relationships, in our marriages, with our spouse, with our kids, with one another. We see that the brokenness in creation itself that God said was very good. And yet today we see earthquakes and we see fires and we see hurricanes and and tornadoes and in volcanoes that that take the very life of people who are created in the image of God. And, And what happens is when we see these things, too often we put God on trial. And we say, how can a good God allow evil? How could a good God allow things to be this way. He must not be good. He must be distant. He must not care. Can we actually trust a God who allows a world like we see today to exist? This is my big idea for today. That If you're taking notes and if you want to know where are we going, what's kind of the thesis of today's message, it's this, that God is good, God is righteous, and God is merciful in the face of our doubts and disobedience. Like too often, I think what can happen is we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we've talked about this, right? Like the central theme in chapter 1 is God. His name is mentioned over 30 times. God said, God saw, God 
declared, God spoke, God made, God said again and again and again. And we see this over 30 times in chapter one. We see it nearly 20 times in chapter two. And then we get to chapter three. And what can happen is we forget about God altogether and we just focus on man. And and what I want to kind of change this perspective is let's keep the focus on who is God in the face of our disobedience and our doubts, because we will see that he is good, he is righteous, and he is merciful, even when we are the ones to blame. And so look with me, Genesis chapter 2. I want to encourage you to just go back a a little bit here. So from chapter 3, go to to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And I want us to see the generosity of God's provision, his goodness being displayed through the generosity of his provision. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. And the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How would you describe these trees? How would you describe God's provision here? That that the trees are, are beautiful, all of them are beautiful to look at, that they're good, that they're delicious. The food is is delicious and healthy for the body. That in the middle of the garden is not just the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but also the tree of life. That's the first one mentioned, both of these. And they can eat freely from all the trees, including the tree of life. And then God says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from this one tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Eat from every tree, any of them. See its fruit, eat from it enjoy it. It's beautiful. It's tasty. Like consider God here. Was God good in in creating? Like even the healthy food was delicious, right? Like anybody who knows me knows I'm not a big fruits and vegetables guy. Oreo cookies and ice cream. Yes. Cause they taste better. Right? So part of it hit me like even the healthy food was beautiful and delicious. It's not like God was like, eat your broccoli, but don't eat the Oreo cookies on the tree, right? No, it was all beautiful. It was all tasty. It was all delicious. It was all healthy. And it's not like God said, I've created all these trees. You're going to see it all, but you can only eat from this one tree, right? Don't eat from, from all the other trees. No. Do you see God's generosity? He created all the trees. Eat from any of them, just this one don't eat from. We see his generosity and that he's clear. He's not deceptive. He's not like you see all these trees. There's one in here that's going to kill you. It's like Russian roulette. Be careful that you don't eat from it or you're going to die. No, 
He's like, you see this one here, right in the middle. There's the tree of life and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eat from this, you will have life eternal. Eat from this one, you're going to certainly die. It's clear. He's not trying to trick. He's not trying to deceive. He's generous in what he's given. That God is good and gracious. But here's where we begin to see the doubt creep in. We see it right here in verse 1 of chapter 3. It reminds me a little bit of fishing. I don't know if anybody else fishes. I'm kind of like breaking it into three simple steps, right? Like if we always fished with uh, earthworms, like you get them nice and alive and gooey and like you you put them on the hook and you let them dangle. So it just kind of like tempts the fish, right? And so you bait the hook and then you toss it out there. And we never fished with bobbers. We just kind of held the line and you can kind of start to feel it nibble, but, but you always wait for them to take it. And as soon as they take the bait, you set the hook. Now, some of you, I don't know if this is like, yeah, that makes sense. Or others are like, that's horrible. That's terrible. But then you pull it in and you eat the fish. Like, this is how it works. You set the hook and you reel them in. This is what's happening here. This is where we begin to see the goodness of God, of who he is, that God is good. And yet man is doubting God's goodness. It's not just that they were tempted to do something bad. That disobedience began with the doubt of God's character. This is where the disobedience came from. Did God really say, ah, the serpent more crafty than any of the others. Did God really say, we've just gotten done looking at what God's word did, right? Like God's word formed and filled the earth. God's word separated light from darkness. God's word separated the waters from the sky to the waters below. God's word separated dry land from the sea. God's word filled the the heavens with the sun, the moon, the stars. God's word filled the sky with birds of the air. God's word, spoken word, filled the earth with all kinds of living creatures. God's word is powerful. And yet here's the thing. Did God really say? And here the serpent did not deny God's word, but he introduced the thought of doubt. Maybe God's word isn't sufficient. Maybe God's word isn't best. Maybe God is trying to hold me back. There's something malicious. There's something lacking in God's character toward me. And we even see the doubt begin in Eve's mind. In verses 2 and 3, the woman replied, said to the serpent, Oh, we can eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. God said, eat from any tree. Eat from all of them except one. And and she's like, yeah, we can eat from the trees. But but about the, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, don't eat it. Don't touch it. Now, is that fully true? Is the tree of knowledge of good and evil the only tree in the middle of the garden? No. It's one of two trees. I want you to see the crack that starts, the 
the hook is baited and the nibbles have begun. Maybe there are doubts. Because there's a tree of life and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we begin to see that the doubts in her mind diminishing, softening God's word. And then the accusation strikes. The hook is about to be set. No, no. And with one word, the word of God is undermined. You will certainly not die. What did God say? If you eat from this one tree, you will certainly die. There's no confusion here. There's nothing hidden. There's no trickery. And then it's no, no, no. You will not certainly die. That's not what's going to happen. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. You're not going to die. And and here it is. Here's what I want you to see of how temptation starts, how doubt will lead to disobedience. Because what's being doubted is that what God has said is right is not true. God's lied to you. God is withholding good from you. There is something good here that God doesn't want you to have. And when you have it, you're going to be better off because God, in all this thing. He's withholding something good from you. He's withholding happiness from you. And, and, and he says you can't do this, but in reality, this is going to make you happy. In reality, this is going to give you life. And, and, we, and it's treating God as some insecure threatened by his own creation. God's holding you back because you'll be like God. As if God is just some on some patriarchal power trip and not looking out for our best, that we know better. What is in doubt here is the character of God, which we see in our own culture again and again and again. Did God really say? Did God really mean? Won't I find happiness outside of what God has commanded? Will that really lead to my flourishing Enjoy, can God be trusted? And that ultimately is what leads to disobedience. With the hook set, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Was it good for food? Is that what God said? No. All the other trees are good for food. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is certain death. Not good for food right? Like if I tell you, here's two sandwiches, have one, you're going to live, eat this one, and you're going to die. Which one do you want? Like this isn't confusing here, but it's like, ooh, this one now looks better. And I sympathize with this because this is how my brain works half the time, right? Like don't do this one. Now I want it. She sees that it's good for food and it's beautiful. Oh, it's nice to look at. Look at This is unique. This is beautiful. How could God say no if it's so beautiful? Because obviously its beauty must counter God's word. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Isn't that what we want? We want to be our own God. We want to be the 
determining factor of right and wrong, what I can and can't do. Ah, this will help me get what I want. Let me do it. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. What God said, don't do, she did. The New Testament tells us that Eve was deceived by the serpent. But Adam was not deceived. Adam willfully sinned. It says that that Adam was right there with her. She took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. We see that that Adam wasn't just off somewhere else in the garden. Adam was there beside her, not just with her in the garden, but with her as the serpent was speaking. Because even the serpent, when he's talking to Eve, is using the plural form. It's indicating to us. It's wanting us to see that, that Adam is there. And I want you to see what's happening here. That, e, that Adam sinned willfully, eyes wide open, without hesitation. His sin was filled with a sinful self-interest. Consider this for a moment. You know what God said. You eat this fruit, you die, right? So Adam's there, Eve's having the conversation, and she goes to eat the fruit. Now, what does he do? No, don't eat that. You're going to die. Like, well, let's see what's going to happen. Right? Now she doesn't die, as he understood that to mean. Like, "Ah, I guess it's okay. Like, she tried it, and she's still here. Like, then he ate. It was a willful, Eve was deceived, Adam was not. That's how the scripture describes it. Now what? In the face of our doubts, In the face of our disobedience, we've already seen that God is good. But now I want us to see that God is also righteous. And the consequences he said were going to happen, happen. And it's much, much more devastating than anything I think they could have comprehended. And that's what exactly what God was protecting them from. In verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Just let that phrase sink in for a moment. The sound of the Lord God walking. Who is the perfect physical representation of God? It is Christ. And I believe this is Christ before he was born in a manger walking in the garden as the sun begins to sit. It almost sounds like this was the routine. That post-dinner walk. How was your day, Adam and Eve? What did you enjoy of my creation today? This intimacy, this walking together, is now replaced with hiding. And they hid from the Lord God. They hid among the trees of the garden. Intimacy with God is replaced by hiding from God. Where are you? Why are you hiding? We're naked. Who told you that? 
Do you see all of a sudden what's happened is this full unfettered acceptance from God is now replaced by shame. There's this shame that has filled them from disobedience, understanding now their own nakedness before God, and now intimacy is replaced by hiding. This acceptance is replaced by shame, and truthfulness is replaced by blame. Who told you that? Did you eat from the tree? And notice the blame that had him. Adam blames God. This is where it all begins. That woman you gave me. It's faulty. Like, she gave this to me. If you hadn't created her, I would be fine. This is your fault, God. Then it's like, Eve? He's like, the serpent. The serpent that, that you made, right? The serpent deceived me. I was tricked. Neither obeyed and listened to the word of God blame, not wanting to take accountability for their own actions, for their own doubts, for their own disobedience. They blame God, they blame their situation, that they blame others, but in the end, it leaves them filled with shame, hiding from God. And I just wonder if there's anyone who's doing that today. Like if I was to hold up a mirror and say, does anyone find themselves doing that today? God desiring to walk with you. But, but there's shame there. Maybe something you've done, past mistakes. This morning, yelled at your kids on the way here because they didn't, couldn't find their shoes. Like, <laughs> whatever it was. And you find your heart just a little bit reserved, a little bit hiding, a little bit withdrawn, desiring intimacy, yet hiding, desiring acceptance, but but feeling shame. God does rightly judge our sin, but he's also merciful. But we do see his right judgment that God, and and I've said this before, God as author of his creation also has authority over his creation, right? Like as an author, you have authority. God has authority and he is a righteous, good judge. And so when wrong happens, they are published. And, And so to the serpent, he says, you are cursed. It is this direct personal attack to the serpent. And in the serpent, we, we understand from the New Testament is Satan. That is a representative of Satan doing the tempting. And God gives a judgment of what will come in verse 15, which we're going to come back to. And to the woman, he said, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. There are two things here as a consequence to their disobedience. The joyfulness of childbirth will now include pain. A pain I don't understand, but I have seen and watched. (laughs) I don't know what childbirth would have been like before the fall. 
but there is pain in that. And in, in addition to that, there is both a physical and an emotional pain because it says, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with a painful effort. It seems as though there's aspects in this language that is even beyond just the physical childbirth, but also that process of raising children who are now going to be born into sin. Meaning we don't have to teach our children to be bad, right? Like I didn't have to teach my children to steal or hit or to lie or to disobey. They figure that out on their own. We have to teach them to follow. And and there is times when this tests our patience as parents. And, And there is a painfulness in not just childbirth, but child rearing. There is pain now in the marriage, this union that God created to fulfill his purposes. There's pain there now that in this you will desire, your desire will be for your husband, that the woman will desire to control her husband, but she will be frustrated and fail because God has ordained for the man to be the head of that marriage relationship. And so there's going to be tension there now. There's going to be frustration there now. There will be friction in in this most intimate of space where it was never meant to be. To man, God says, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat. And then you ate. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. For from dust you were taken, and to dust you will return. There's a couple things here. One, God curses the serpent, but he does not curse Adam and Eve directly. And I want us to see that because they were created in the image of God. He makes childbirth difficult, but does not curse Eve. He curses the ground, but he does not curse Adam. He's like, look, work was intended before the fall. Before all of this happened, work was going to be part of life. Work itself is not bad, but now work is going to come with toil. And so to the man, what's going to happen is you're going to work, you're going to labor, you're going to get frustrated to feed your family, feed yourself, feed the kids, and then you're going to die. That's going to be life. We're like, yeah, (laughs) I feel that. That there's a, a quote from Hidney Blucker that says, in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It is not the reverse of existence. So when it says on this day, like when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And it's like, I thought I was just going to like drop dead, stop breathing, and my existence was going to be no more. But that's not death in the Bible. Death to die does not mean to cease to be, but in biblical terms, it means cut off from the land of the living. It is a diminished existence, but nevertheless an existence. That death is a separation from God. It is a separation in our relationships. There is a broken and a frustration in the world. 
And so in the face of our doubts and our disobedience, I've said that God is good, which we have seen, that God is righteous, which we see in his judgment. But I also want us to see that God is merciful. This aspect that God is merciful in the face, in the moment of our doubt, in the moment of our disobedience, the mercy of God shines through. There is a promise that we see in Genesis 3.15 that is called the first gospel. You've heard me talk about this before. They say it's the first time that the gospel is mentioned here because what we see is that from the woman will be born a son that he will strike your head to the serpent. There will be born a son who fatally destroys the serpent, who defeats sin and death. This promise from the beginning and from this moment forward, it is looking for who will be this son? Who is this one who is promised to redeem? Who is this son who will be the the sin crusher? We're looking for him because there's this promise in God's mercy. There is a promise that yes, things are broken today. Yes, there is judgment today, but it will not always be so. There is coming one who will redeem and restore what has been lost in the Garden of Eden. And that God, not only does he promise, but he also provides. What is a temporary provision will become a permanent provision. See, in in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. They tried to cover up their shame. They tried to cover up their guilt for themselves, but it was insufficient. It couldn't do it. Adam and Eve tried to, to cover their sin and shame the same way that many of us try to do the same thing. Right in our shame and in our guilt, what do we do? So many of us, what we look for these temporary coverings that, oh, well, maybe in a relationship, if I receive love from someone else, if I receive acceptance, then that validates me as a person. And so we go from boyfriend to girlfriend. We look at our spouses as the substance of our identity. We look at being a parent as our identity to try to cover our own guilt and shame. We hide our our guilt and shame with with fig leaves of car brands and house square footage and busyness of our calendar. We sow fig leaves to escape of drugs and alcohol in a promiscuous lifestyle, trying to bury that guilt and shame deeper and deeper, but it cannot do it. And so we see God's provision in verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man of his wife, and he clothed them. God killed an animal. He skinned its hide, sewed clothing, and covered their shame and guilt. This is where we come to understand and what we will see in the centuries to come, the sacrifice and the sacrificial system of it takes blood to cover the sin and the guilt of mankind. 
But all of this, all of these things in the promise and in the provision are pointing us to Christ. These three truths that God is good, he is righteous, he is merciful, and that Jesus is that promise. The one who was promised in in Genesis 3.15 is Christ, a promised son who would crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 9.6 says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Jesus is the promised Son who ultimately defeats sin and death. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Where death? Where is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who crushed the head of the serpent and who was wounded in the process. That Jesus is the ultimate and final provision. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him and we are healed by his wounds. Isaiah 53, Romans 6 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. I want us to see that the initial provision of God in the Garden of Eden was ultimately fulfilled in the final sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The one who was promised, who covers our guilt and our shame by taking them on the cross and covering us, clothing us, is the language that's used in his righteousness. That provision we see pictured in the garden is our reality today by faith in Christ. So why does he delay? Why are things still broken? Why does the world still groan? Why hasn't Christ returned to restore what is promised in Eden? Why is there still sickness? Why do we still bury loved ones? Why? And God's put on trial as we wait. But I want us to hear why it is good that God is patient. To return. In 2 Peter 3, it says this The Lord does not delay his promise. Not as some understand delay, but it's patience with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do you see? the mercy of God in his patience to us. Yes, God has not returned yet. Yes, the world is still broken, but why? It is the mercy of God on display because once Jesus returns, once he returns, there's no more opportunity to place your faith and trust in him. And so God's patience is an act of mercy to his creation so that all 
would have time to trust in him and be clothed in his righteousness and his goodness. And then we turn and we put God on trial for our wrongs, for our impatience. And we make accusations about God that can lead us into disobedience. But I want us to see that God is good, that he is righteous, and that he is merciful. In the face of mankind, doubts and disobedience, God is beautifully good. And we experience his goodness in our life when we place our faith and trust on Jesus Christ, believing that he is who he said he is. He is God in human flesh. He is the son who was promised in the garden. He is our provision. And by faith, he died paying the penalty for our guilt and our shame so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Look to Christ. He is our promised redeemer. He is the promised sin crusher. He is the promised provision. Let us follow him together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reality of your goodness and generosity on display. And even that you righteously judge, that you have determined right from wrong for our good and for our flourishing, Lord. And I pray that you would forgive us when we have doubted your goodness, your truthfulness to us, choosing our own way and choosing doubt and disobedience over faith and belief. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. The the reality, Lord, and just the, the weight of the reality that it was not just an animal that was sacrificed to cover our sin, Lord, that was temporary and insufficient, Lord, but that you would give your only son to die on the cross to redeem and restore us. Lord, I pray that that lifts our hearts this morning. I pray that that brings us out of hiding. I pray that that brings us out of shame to know that once again, because of Christ, we can have intimacy. Because of Christ, we can have acceptance. Lord, would you take these truths from your word and marinate our souls? Let us taste and feel and experience its sweetness. And let us, let it draw us closer to you, to draw us out of hiding and into the fullness of your presence. And Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.